0: Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 88, verses 1 through 18. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath-Leonath, a mescal of Haman the Ezraite. Lord, you are the God who saves me, day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day, I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of God.
1: Rich Villotis, who wrote a book that many of our leaders are reading right now, called A Deeply Formed Life. He says, you know, one of the best ways to chew on Scripture is through prayer. He says that uh, whereas in meditation, we're aware of God's word being spoken to us in prayer, we are offering words to God. We're calling out the ways that we've been addressed by God. And we're contemplating and reflecting, contemplation and reflection, is uh, to rest in the love of God. That's in a sense what the Psalms are. They're prayers, praise, reflections that lead us to rest in the love of God, in the person of God, in the promise of God, in the purpose of God. Now, we need to know that just about every Psalm, even if the writer is suffering, even when the writer is just in intense suffering, Most psalms end with hope in the 150 psalms that are in the Bible. Last week, for instance, the psalm ends, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. There's hope there. Most of them end that way, but not the psalm that we're reading today. In fact, Psalm 88 is unique in that it's only one of two psalms in all the 150 psalms that exist in the Bible that end without any hope. And yet through it, we're going to see three things about navigating moments where we are in the darkest place i imagine that darkness when we're in dark moments we're not talking about having a dark part of a day i'm talking about moments and periods in our lives stages in our lives where we are just utterly in darkness one what does it mean What does it mean to be in darkness? Two, what do we learn from it? What are the lessons that we learn from being in darkness? And three, how do we apply those lessons? What does it mean to be in darkness? What do we learn from that darkness or the lessons from those darkness? And third, how do we apply those lessons? First, what does it mean to be in darkness? Verse one, the psalmist, the psalm says, day and night I cry out to you. Day and night I cry out to you. The author has been praying. The author is in tears. And it's been a while. Verse 15 says, from my youth, I have been afflicted. That's afflicted. That's a long time. The writer's been praying. The writer's in tears. But it's as if God has been absent. He experiences silence. And so he's in this world of darkness, a cloud of darkness. There's this thick darkness that is over him. We're not really sure what the circumstance really is, but clearly it's been overwhelming in his life ever since he was a youth, uh, a youngster. Now, verse 2, he says, I, I'm crying out. I cry out. Verse 3, my soul is full of trouble. In other words, I'm consumed. He even says, I'm dying over here. Verse 4, it sacks me of my strength. I can't even get out of bed, in other words. Verse 5, it's as if God has forgotten about me. I'm cut off. Verse 6, I'm going to paraphrase. It's basically saying, I'm going through hell. Verse 7, I sense your wrath. It's crashing over me, wave after wave after wave. Yet because we have no idea what the problem is, we don't really know what was going on in his life, we can apply this psalm generally in our lives. What does that mean? There are times when things are so bad There are times when life is such a struggle, you can't even get out of bed. You're just crawling on the floor. Day and night, you are drowning in darkness, in tears, and you're doing it alone. You're alone, whatever the circumstance is in our lives. In verse 8, Heman, the, the author of this psalm, he's lost everyone in his life. His friends have rejected him. They've abandoned him. In verse 9, he's overwhelmed, but he says, I'm going to you. And yet, verse 10, I feel like I'm left for dead. There's no sense of God. I'm looking for God. I desire God. I'm searching for God. Yet there's no sense of God in my life. There's no sense of God in my situation. I can't see what good can come of anything that I'm going through in my life. Like, it's like there's a black hole in his life, and it's sucking him into his problems. But the greater darkness is, it's like the sun has set On his soul. In Genesis chapter 28, you have Jacob. Jacob is a thief. Jacob is a liar in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. He betrays his family, betrays his brother, and so he's on the run. And he gets to this place, he realizes he has lost everything in his life. To leave your family in those ancient times when family, remember, there was no internet. Cities were not as robust. To leave your family, to leave home is to, is to die, essentially. There's, there's no way to sustain your life. He has lost everything in his life. He is completely alone. And the text says that he didn't even have a pillow. I mean, think about it. If you had a jacket, if you had a coat, if you had a bag, you would use that as a pillow. He didn't have a pillow to sleep on, so he uses a rock. He has absolutely lost everything. Because, and, and this is all happening as, as the text poetically states that the sun has set. But really the tone of that text, it implies as if the sun has set on Jacob's entire life. That's what we're seeing here. This man is doing all the right things though. He's not running. He's doing all the right things. He's going to God. He's praying. This is Heman or Haman. Heman, the Ezraite. In other words, he's a religious person. He's recognized as a religious person. He's a good person but he's got no real sense of God's presence in his life. You know what that means? It's dangerous. You can go to church. You can worship. You can have a great reputation as somebody who is in the church. You can pray. You can seek God. You can desire God, want God, search for God, and yet be consumed in a world of darkness for a very long time. It's a hard truth, and yet it's still true. The Bible doesn't mince that. That's what it means to be in darkness. Now, what do you learn from that? What are the lessons that we can still draw from times of darkness? I mean, has God truly abandoned this man? Has God truly abandoned us in our darkness? There are several lessons we can learn. I'm just going to walk through three quick lessons. One, you can go to God as you are. You see, when you suffer trauma, You process, you tend to process your entire life through that trauma. Paul Tripp, uh, noted author, we quote him often, uh, very gospel-centered preacher. He says, most of the time, our lives shrink to the the size of our problems. Our lives, our perspective in life shrinks to the size of our problem. Our world shrinks to the size of our problems. Look at this psalm. This man doesn't mince his words at all, regardless, anywhere. He doesn't try to control his motions in this text. He's given up all formality in his dialogue with God in his prayer, especially in the last third of the Psalms. You see a crescendo, and this man, he just starts to pop off, right? He almost stares God down. He's looking God down. Verse 10, do you show wonders to the dead? Do the dead rise up in praise? Verse 11, is love, is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness declared in destruction? Wow. Verse 12, are your wonders known in places of darkness or your righteous deeds in a land of oblivion? In other words, he's saying this. You know, you are supposed to be a loving God, a faithful God. You say you are a powerful God, and yet here I am. I'm dead, and I'm ruined. I'm in hell. Don't you see that? I mean, do you even want me to praise you? Because dead people can't praise you, you know. No, you don't want that? Then where are you? Verses 13 to 15, he says, you know, I've been praying for a while, but you've hidden your face from me. To hide your face, it implies intimacy, right? One of the big struggles right now that we're experiencing in this, in this period is that we can't see people face-to-face. I mean, you can see them through FaceTime. You can see them through technological means, right? We have Zoom. We have all these methods of seeing people. And yet, we said, but I don't see you face-to-face. The intimacy isn't there. And this man is praying. He says, I can't see you face-to-face. I don't see your face. You've hidden it from me. Verse 13, since I've been young, I've suffered without relief. All I've experienced is your terror and despair. Wow. And how does he end? Verse verse 18. Darkness. All my friends have left me. Darkness is my closest friend. In Hebrew, it's actually even more poetic than that because the psalm actually ends with the word darkness. So you have 18 verses and they're crescendoing into a world of understanding this man's experience and he ends with darkness. He shuts the door on it. The word darkness appears three times. The first third in verse 6, the second third of this text in verse 12, the third third in verse 18. The beginning, the middle, and the end. In other words, the author is surrounded in a cloud of darkness. His life is characterized by darkness in almost like the three acts of this psalm. So why is it here? This is the lesson You can go to God as you are. You're going to be thankful that this text is in here because, look, as dark as things are, as hopeless as this man views through his lenses, we don't know what he went through. He's still praying. He's still going to God. He's still praying to God. This psalm is in the Bible, which means what? God has heard him. God has heard him. This is why it's important. Now think. When you're around people... I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm around, I'm around people who grew up in the church pretty often. And uh, people tend to be very informal with each other when, they've, when they get to know each other. Some people, you, we call them, you're savage, right? Some people are like that. But the moment you see those people start to pray, they almost change their posture. They sanitize their words. They sanitize their prayers. We tend to go to God, no matter how bad things are, we will pop off to our friends And then when we turn around and we pray, we sanitize those very prayers as if we compartmentalize God in two sections. We use words that we normally would never use in front of other people. I come before you, we say. In modern language. We never talk like that to anyone else. And it's suddenly because... People are often misled. They're taught that we need to clean up our act. We are still so works righteous in our approach to God. We are still so performance driven in our approach to God. We still think that even though we hear we can come as we are, we still feel like we need to come before God in a certain way and and clean up our act before we talk to God. But not here, not in this text. And that's why this text is amazing. It's wonderful for us. This psalm is raw. This psalm is real. It doesn't even end well. And yet it's in the Bible. So it means that God has heard. God has heard it and intentionally placed this in there. He wants us to know how this person talks to him. He wants us to know. Even though this man is talking filthy to God, God wants you to come to him like that. You may be tired, broken, covered into sorrow, Wrapped up in guilt, just bitter in suffering, anxious and in despair, don't wait to sanitize yourself. He already knows. I'm going to do one better than that. He relates. He actually identifies with you. He understands and he is gracious. Come to God. You can go to God as you are. But two, you need to go to God for God. One of the most difficult parts of being a Christian is that there are, especially when you're about to become a Christian, is that there are parts of the Bible you just don't like, but they're still there. They're there and you can't do anything about it. There are parts of the Bible that you don't like and there are things that you also in life that you really, really want, but God says, no. So you don't like to hear certain things from God. In your experience, and you don't like to hear some things from God that are written, that are objective. There's an objective reality that you don't like about God, and there's a subjective experience that you don't like about God. Right? There's silence. There are things that you really want God says, no, there's silence. And it's not because you wanted something bad. I mean, what do you see here? God, I'm lonely. God, I'm afflicted. God, I need healing. God, I need comfort. God, I need your presence. Are those bad things? No, they're good things. But God says no. Not right now. You have to see, whether you're looking at the Bible or looking at your experience, that a God that is the product of your desires, a God that can't say no, can never be a God that shapes you, can never be a God that challenges your desires, can never be a God that changes you, a God that doesn't argue with you. You ever get into an argument with somebody? Most people say that you will be a formal friend and a casual friend with somebody until you get into a big fight with them. Once you start to argue with them, there are downsides to arguments, right? But arguments draw out what each person values. There's a clash of values and then a realignment that draws you in to become closer friends. A God that doesn't argue with you can never shape you because you can't have a real relationship with a God that you can't argue with. If, a God, if your God is a product of all of your desires, that God will never be able to challenge you or shape you in your desires. You see that? That kind of God will never be able to save you. We often go to God for things. We go to God for comfort. I want a home. I want that neighborhood. We often go to God for wealth. I need that job. Will you pray for me? I want that job. Will you pray for me? I need that promotion. Will you pray for me? I'm going through a test. There's a big test in my life right now. We often go to God for other relationships, even though he is the one relationship that we need, right? Will you pray for me? I want to get involved with this person. I want, to, I want, Lord, I want this person in my life, right? We often go to God about family. Keep my family healthy. Keep my family safe. But wisdom, the wisdom of this psalm is we need to go to God for God, even when he says no. No matter what you're going through. No matter where, what you're experiencing, no matter how bad it is, no matter how you feel, you got to go to God for God. Thirdly, now think about this. Your darkness then, your darkness is compounded by God saying no in, in this intense desire for relief that pulls you into seeking and questioning God's presence in your life. Your darkness reveals what you actually go to God for in the first place. Because when you're in darkness, everything about your relationship with God starts to feel very rote, very very uh, mechanical, like work. What's the point of praying? He doesn't hear me anyway. What's the point of going to community group? I'm just not there. I don't feel this desire to be there. Even when it's over, I don't feel like I gained anything from it. What's the point of giving? I don't have, that's what I'm praying about. What's the point of church? There's nothing encouraging that I can draw from it. Why go to God at all? And the answer is, you're asking those things because you never went to God to get more of God in the first place. You went to God for things. You're going to God for things. There's a cost-benefit analysis that's taking place in your brain, but really more so in your soul. And it's not working out. It doesn't compute. It doesn't calculate. right. How do you know? Darkness. When you suffer and God seems silent and absent, When you pray and you serve and you're you're part of community but you're still hurting and it doesn't address the deep need, the deep-rooted desire or need in your heart and that's causing the darkness in your life and there's no answer. When you lost the comforts of your life, and I don't want to denigrate the losses that people experience, especially in this season, but when you lose the things that you love, when you lose the people that you love, in fact, most of us, When you first go to church, when you first go to God, how does it start? You try to worship. You start to pray, you start to give, you start to obey, you start to take part in community, community groups and, and outreach. And things are going very, very well. And, and there's this almost overwhelming emotional experience, what people call a spiritual high that, that seems sustainable. It goes for a season sometimes, but then trouble starts to hit. And then another wave of trouble, and then another wave of trouble. And you see this psalm starting to play out in your life because this psalmist says, wave after wave, there's trouble and suffering and despair in my life. And then you start. your heart starts to do this cost-benefit analysis and you start to say, what's in it for me? What have I gained for them? This is for the birds. What, what am I gaining from this? God expects me to pull through for Him and yet He has not once pulled through for me. Your suffering is a crucible in which the extreme pressure of suffering and despair reveals areas in your life Where you go to God to use God, not go to God for more of God. Where you go to God because there are other things that you really believe you need. There are other things that you truly value more than God. It reveals these things. And God is merely just a way to get those things. But Haman, right, some people say Haman, Haman, he's different. I mean, he's crying, he's screaming, he is in pain, he is in self-pity, he is in despair because he has lost everything and everyone in his life. Look at that last verse. Darkness is my only friend, is my closest friend, but he still goes to God. Maybe he's mad at God, maybe he's blaming God, maybe he's confused by God, maybe he's all those things. But this psalm says, then say it, say it and hang on. Say it and hold on. Say it and hold on to the trust. Just trust that he's still there. Why? Because even if you've lost everything, even if you've lost all control in your life, God has not lost control. He is still God. And then you will know if you've been near God because you're serving him or you've been near God because you are serving yourself. And this, when you come to that reality in your life, this is the beginning of real maturity in your life. This is the beginning then This is the argument that's fruitful. It's the beginning of real intimacy with God. Your suffering is a crucible. What is a crucible? There's incredible heat, there's incredible pressure, there's darkness. But under that extreme heat and pressure and darkness, it can shape you into a diamond of enduring poise. I've always wanted poise, I've always wanted courage, I've always wanted endurance. Your darkness, when you're in the throes of darkness, it's a training ground, an incubator for that poise, an incubator for that courage, an incubator for that endurance. Remember that movie Braveheart? In the beginning of Braveheart, uh, if you don't know Braveheart, you should watch it. It's about three hours of investment of time, but well worth it. You learn history, you learn, you see love, there's romantic, there's comedy, there's everything, and there's war. You got everything in that movie, right? Uh, in that movie, you have a young William Wallace in the beginning who wants to go to war because his father and his brother's are going off to war. They're fighting for freedom. And he goes, he's he, he basically sitting on his horse, and his father says, uh, what are you doing? And, and, and young William Wallace, he's just really a child. He says, I can fight. But then his father says, I know you can fight. But it's our wits, it's our poise that make us men. How do you develop those wits? It's through darkness. If you don't understand, well, hang on for this last point or watch, watch Braveheart too, it'll tell you, all right? How do you apply these lessons? Let's face it. Real darkness always feels like it's over. It always feels like it's final. It always feels like we're at the end point. It's hard to see any light. The psalmist here says, I'm abandoned, I've been rejected, you've left me for dead. And yet, he's not, really. And yet, we're not, really. See, Haman, he is is the leader of a group of musicians and songwriters that were appointed by King David. And so he was a great man. That great religious man, he's the one that wrote this song. And what that means is that all the while, Haman's been serving and struggling at the same time. And even though it seemed that God has abandoned Haman, God was present, working through Haman, to encourage his people throughout, their, throughout his lifetime and even now in our lifetime. What that means is that Haman's darkness became songs that shaped people for thousands of years. God never abandoned him. But was working through that suffering to build his church. And if you remember these lessons. You can go to God as you are. You go to God for God And that suffering is a crucible, that darkness is a crucible that reveals the moments and the areas in your life where you actually go to God for things more than you go to God for God. When you apply these lessons, if you remember these lessons that come from your own darkness, you will trust that God has not abandoned you. And we know this because when you look to the cross, what do you see? On the cross, there was darkness. Darkness. There was a physical darkness that came over the entire land when Jesus was being crucified. But on the cross, there was the ultimate darkness that Jesus himself and only Jesus was experiencing and only he could experience and only he would be willing to experience. Because on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is this is the ultimate darkness. It's as if the sun has set on the land, but the sun has set, truly set on my soul. You see, Haman suffered a mere taste of that darkness, and he thought, just a mere taste, a small glimpse, and he thought, "My life is over, but God made him great." God remember, God remembered Haman, and as a result, we all remember Haman through his suffering, and he was still able to go to God, and God actually did hear God was still present in Haman 's life, but Jesus Christ suffered and endured the ultimate darkness that Haman, he only experienced a glimpse of, a taste of. I mean, Haman says, you've taken away my closest friends. You've cut me off. I'm in the deeps of darkness, the depths of darkness. I'm experiencing your wrath, wave after wave. Does that remind you of somebody? Jesus Christ was betrayed by his closest friends. Isaiah 53 says, Jesus Christ was cut off from the land of the living. In fact, he was so cut off, they, they acted out these kind of experiences. They crucified him outside of the city. The city is where the life was, the robustness of life. They crucified him outside the city. He was cut off from the land of the living. And on the cross, the wrath of God was being poured out on him as a penalty for our sins, all of our sins. In other words, he was experiencing when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm getting everything right now that my people deserve. I've been cut off. I'm in the darkest depths. I've lost everyone, including you, the center of my joy. And so, as a result, because I'm completely separated from God, what is that? He's experiencing hell on the cross. I'm in hell, in a sense. As God the Father turned his face away, and yet, do you see? Even in his deepest despair, even in his darkness, even in the depths of his darkness, he has lost everything, he has lost the intimacy of God the Father himself. Yet he says, my God, my God. Jesus went to God, not for things. Was he crying out for relief? Was he crying? In fact, he was denying relief on the cross, if you read the Bible. Was he crying out for things? He willingly sacrificed all things. He's, he left the Father's throne above, and emptied himself of all but love, so the hymn says. He was crying out for more of God, even after he lost God. To the end, Jesus processed his suffering, his hell, his cross, through prayer. Even as he was being rejected and forsaken by the Father. Why? So that you so that I, so that we can be remembered by the Father. So that we can go to God and be heard. Jesus, aban- Jesus Christ was abandoned on the cross so that you would only taste that rejection at times in, in your life. But you will never, ever be truly abandoned. And even though Jesus suffered the ultimate rejection, the ultimate wrath, God demonstrated his love for us on the cross. His forgiveness, His faithfulness, and His presence. He will never abandon us. That's the promise. Every time you think, is God there? Look to the cross. And you'll know that God is present in your darkness. In your darkness. The Son bled and died for us. He took on the ultimate darkness in His suffering. In His suffering. In His darkness. So He can be present in your darkness. Which means that God then can use Your suffering. I mean, God was silent before Jesus. God allowed him to suffer. Why? So he could work through that suffering and not only exalt Jesus, his son, for having fully obeyed and accomplished his work, but he accomplished salvation. That work was an accomplishment of salvation for his people. And if God can do that through Jesus' suffering, in his silence, he can truly make you great. In yours in a sense then verse 18 gets turned on its head darkness can be your friend and I'm not saying that lightly I've been there but it's not because God has demonstrated uh, his uh, his uh, over presence by giving you things that you want in that moment it's because through that silence there's a deeper reality that you see about yourself and about God's love for you. In the deepest depths, meet Jesus in any world of hell, in any suffering that you experience. You can go to him. You can be real with him because there's no place he wouldn't go. There's no place he didn't go for you. He identifies with you. He's been there that gives us hope. My prayer is that we'd be able to take this in in a way that would give us new life in Christ. Let's pray together as we close.